It's an age-old truth in baseball that fans will come out to support a winning ball club. When the Cubs' attendance plummeted after the White Sox came to town in 1900, they learned the hard way that the only way to win back the crowd would be to start winning games again. In 1905, both the Cubs and the Sox won over 90 games, and sure enough, the support followed. For the first time, the two teams combined to draw over a million spectators, nearly reaching 1.2 million overall. It was also the fourth time in five years that the Sox outdrew the Cubs. If the National Leaguers wanted to close the gap, they might have to do some serious winning like, I don't know, maybe setting the Major League record for wins? I'm Terry Bonadonna, and on today's episode of Chicago's Civil War, peace, or at least something resembling it, is established at last between the leagues, and postseason play goes on uninterrupted. Also, we'll chronicle the greatest season of baseball the city of Chicago has ever seen, and it's all too appropriate ending. All of that coming up, right now. In the winter of 1905, John Brush challenged the Boston Americans to a spring series that would determine the champion of the previous season. When Boston declined, stating that they had been ready to play in the fall when a series would have been appropriate, the hypocritical Brush accused Boston President John Taylor of being afraid. Say this for Brush, he knew how to capture a headline. In fact, the New York Giants president, who was largely responsible for the lack of postseason play in 1904, had been instrumental in making sure that didn't happen again. True to his word, he proposed a formal arrangement for postseason championships that would be governed by the National Commission. The National League owners voted unanimously to make it mandatory for the league champion to take on the AL champ at season's end. In February, the rules were presented to the public. All series would be best of seven with each team hosting three games. A seventh game, if necessary, would be played at a neutral site. This one was soon after changed to allow a coin flip to determine the seventh game host. All contracts were officially extended until the end of series play. Players had to be active by August 31st to be eligible for the postseason. And perhaps most importantly to the players, the division of the receipts was regulated. 10% off the top of the first four games would go straight to the commission. Of the remaining 90% of profits, 40 would be split among the players, 75 to the winners, 25 to the losers. These figures were malleable in City Series. Chicago, for instance, decided to give 60% of the receipt money to the players rather than 40. All proceeds from the final three games, if necessary, went straight to the teams. By only allowing the players access to money from the first four games, the National Commission was trying to eliminate a repeat of Jack Taylor's supposed game-fixing of 1903. There would be no incentive to intentionally lose to extend the series. The rules established a guaranteed World Series and allowed each city to determine on their own whether they would play a city series, provided the owners submit a formal application to the National Commission and play by the Commission's rules. For the first time, a city series would be officially sanctioned by organized baseball. In year one of this new arrangement, the whole thing nearly blew up. After their downturn in 1903, the White Sox had gotten back on track. With George Davis back in the fold along with their new star first baseman Jiggs Donahue, they bolstered the offense. But the biggest addition was signing minor league pitcher Ed Walsh, who posted a 217 ERA in 1904. In just one year, the Sox made a 29-game improvement, and in 1905, they were still on the upswing, taking a shot at the pennant in the closing weeks of the season. On the morning of October 5th, the White Sox sat at 90-58, and 58, two games behind the Philadelphia A's for first place in the American League, with four games to go. That's when the National Commission made the unprecedented move of releasing the World Series schedule while the season was still going. 
okay, it was the first World Series ever sanctioned by Major League Baseball, so anything they did would have been unprecedented, but give me a break. I'm trying to sound dramatic here. The series was scheduled to begin on Monday, October 9th in Philadelphia and would continue the next day in New York. Nowhere on the schedule was there a contingency plan for if the White Sox happened to overtake the A's. Comiskey was beside himself. I consider it a most discourteous thing, he said. Why has the commission taken this deliberate slap at me while the race is still on? Calm down was the message of Ban Johnson. If they needed to change it, it would be an easy fix to put Comiskey's White Sox in the A's place. But it was too late for Comiskey. If the Sox won the pennant, he didn't want to play in any dumb World Series. After he had been disrespected, he was done with it. He announced that win or lose the pennant, the White Sox would be taking on the Cubs in a city series at season's end. Satisfied that the commission had cleaned up postseason play, James Hart had issued a challenge to Comiskey on September 4th, and the White Sox owner appreciated that the challenge built in an escape clause if the Sox were to take the pennant. Earlier in the season, Comiskey and Ban Johnson, who had long been great friends, experienced a rift in their relationship when Johnson suspended Ducky Holmes for arguing with an umpire, a punishment that the White Sox owner deemed unjust. Now there was another crack in the great relationship between the co-founders of the American League, and they would never truly heal. The White Sox ended up finishing two games shy of Philadelphia, and Comiskey graciously sent a congratulatory telegram to Connie Mack. Then he geared up for the second city series. For the first time in four years, the Cubs did not improve on their previous season's win total. It was a small step back, though, from 93 to 92. Although they finished with a nearly identical record to the White Sox, they were never in their pennant race, finishing 13 games behind the back-to-back -back NL champion Giants. Knowing they had no shot for the pennant, the Cubs had been preparing all September for the City Series, but they were doing so without their former leader. Frank Seeley had stepped away from the team in late July after learning that he had tuberculosis. It was meant to be a short-term leave of absence, but Seeley never returned. He was the man principally responsible for building the Cubs into a National League powerhouse, but he never got to win a pennant in Chicago. His replacement was the man who had been elected captain in 1903, Frank Chance. As the City Series dawned on October 11th, Chance was the interim leader and first baseman. He was also the best hitter on the team, leading in batting average, on-base, slugging, RBIs, and home runs with, uh, two. Chance had himself slotted into the third spot in the batting order for the opening game, which featured the pitching matchup of Carl Lundgren for the Cubs and Frank Owen for the Sox. A modest crowd was on hand for a cold and damp day after the opener had been pushed back a day already due to rain. The Cubs looked to run away early, amassing a 5-0 lead in Game 1 before the White Sox charged for a four-run sixth inning. They had the tying run at third and the leading run at second with two outs, but Lundgren pitched out of the jam and was scarcely challenged the rest of the day. Nearly 10,000 showed up for Game 2 despite temperatures sitting in the 40s. The refrigerator game, the Chicago Tribune called it. The weather may have been cold, but tempers were hot when Nick Altrock buzzed Johnny Evers with an inside pitch in the second inning. Evers was nicknamed the Crab throughout his career for his irascible nature with umpires, but this time the ump saved the day as Jim Johnstone got in Evers' way and prevented him from attacking the starting pitcher. As for the game itself, the White Sox knocked Cubs rookie Ed Royalbach out in the first inning, scoring four runs, three of them on Jiggs Donahue's inside the park home run, the first homer hit in Chicago City Series history. The Sox cruised to a 7-4 win. The National Leaguers got the White Sox back in Game 3, scoring three in the second inning and making them stand up in a 3-2 win. Tornado Jake Weimer went the distance for his fourth career City Series win. 
The two most notable Chicago pitchers in the early part of the 20th century were far and away the White Sox Ed Walsh and Mordecai Three Finger Brown of the Cubs. Both men made their City Series debuts in 1905. While Brown was relegated to two appearances out of the bullpen, he still managed to throw 13 innings and allow only three runs. Walsh, on the other hand, made only one appearance, strangely, as a pinch hitter in Game 3. The career 194 hitter flew out to end that game. Both Games 3 and 4 featured standing-room-only crowds, which meant standing on the field, but the great fans weren't treated to a very well-played Game 4 at Westside Grounds. The White Sox scored five times in the first inning, but gave it back thanks to walks and errors. The Cubs nabbed an 8-5 victory and carried their hot hitting into Game 5 on the south side. During his first inning at bat, Frank Chance stepped out of the batter's box and was presented with a huge bouquet of chrysanthemums. Though it was a road game, the Cubs had to do it then, because that sort of display was illegal in NL parks. Chance promptly tripled, part of a five-run rally that led the Cubs to a 10-5 win, ending the series. The result wasn't necessarily stunning, but the method was. In all, a whopping 53 runs were scored in the five games. During the regular season, both teams had led their respective leagues in pitching, and the margins hadn't been close. Unlike the drama of two years ago, this was a pretty straightforward Cubs win. They took the series in five games, and the third straight overflow crowd stormed the field and carried the Cubs players off on their shoulders. The Westsiders were officially the first champions of Chicago. After the finale, the team met at the Victoria Hotel and celebrated late into the night. It was a fine swan song for Jimmy Hart, who had sold an option on the Cubs to Cincinnatians Charles Murphy and Charles Taft, the brother of future U.S. President William Howard Taft. Two weeks before the City Series, he had announced that he would officially be departing after the season. On the south side, Comiskey wasn't going anywhere, but he needed to find a way to fortify the roster. He was dejected after the loss, calling it the worst defeat of his career. He vowed to be ready come spring, though, and he was. The Cubs and White Sox 1906 seasons could scarcely have been much different, but they ended in the exact same place. The teams had each won 92 games the previous year behind dominant pitching staffs, but for the Westsiders, there was a feeling that they had stalled following a precipitous rise the previous four years. With that in mind, they went right to work on making improvements. Before the 05 season even ended, word got out that the Cubs had proposed a blockbuster trade with Cincinnati. When the City Series concluded, they officially announced that star pitcher Jake Weimer had been sent to the Redlegs for third baseman Harry Steinfeld. Weimer was tough to lose, and in his first season in Cincy, he won 20 games. But for the Cubs, the move was a slam dunk. Steinfeld immediately became the best hitter on the team, batting 327 with 83 RBIs in his first year with the club. Later that winter, new owner Charles Murphy bolstered the lineup further by sending four players, including regulars Doc Casey and Billy Maloney, to Brooklyn in exchange for slugger Jimmy Sheckard, another move that paid off handsomely. Sheckard spent the next seven years on the west side and proffered a 374 total on-base percentage. Then Murphy and Frank Chance, officially named full-time manager in November, went to work on recouping the losses from the pitching staff. 28-year-old rookie Jack Fister proved to be a cunning pickup as he posted a sub-2 ERA in each of the next two seasons. In June, they swapped underachieving veteran Bob Wicker for Cincinnati right-hander Orville Overall. Overall had a 4.46 ERA at the time of the trade. For the Cubs the rest of the way, he went 12-3 and dropped the earned run average to 1.88. 
Finally, now that James Hart was out of the picture, the path was cleared for the return of Jack Taylor, the accused game fixer of 1903. The Cubs traded for Taylor at midseason, and he went 12-3 down the stretch as well. The Cubs got off to a hot start, winning 16 of their first 22 games. But so did the back-to-back pennant-winning Giants, who sat just a game out of first place when the Cubs took a trip to New York for a four-game series in the first week of June. The Chicagoans had been a nice little story over the season's first month and a half, but this is where the Giants were expected to reclaim what was rightfully theirs. They had already won three of four in Chicago the previous month. With a huge New York crowd on hand for Game 1, three-finger Brown hurled a shutout as the Cubs walked all over Iron Man Joe McGinty and the Giants, 6 to nothing. The next day was even more decisive. They racked up 19 hits en route to an 11-3 triumph. Orville overall threw seven innings in his Chicago debut, but it was all just a warm-up for what went down in Game 3 of the series. Christy Mathewson, perhaps the best pitcher in the game, was on the mound for New York, but he didn't stay there very long. The Cubs sent 15 men to the plate in an 11-run first inning, chasing Mathewson from the game. That didn't slow down the visitors, who scored at least once in each of the first five frames. When all was said and done, the score was 19 to nothing. The Cubs had outhit the Giants 23 to 4, and the home team was booed off the field. New York took the finale the next day, but it hardly seemed to matter. The 36 to 3 drubbing of the Giants over the first three games pronounced that the Cubs were no short-term fad. They established themselves as the team to beat in the National League, and for the rest of the year, nobody could. By July 24th, they were 61-28, already on pace to finish with 105 wins, which would have been just one shy of the record. From that point on, though, they played some of the most sensational baseball ever seen. They were 55-8 over their final 63 games, on their way to a major league record 116 wins, a number never surpassed, even today. They finished the season at the top of the National League in batting, pitching, and fielding, and none of the races was particularly close. They also took a step in recapturing the city's attention. For just the second time since the White Sox hit the scene, the Cubs outdrew them, falling only 33,000 fans shy of the Sox's big league record, which had been set the previous year. Down on the south side, the White Sox weren't doing too poorly themselves. After finishing just two games out of first in 1905, they didn't have quite as much ground to make up as the Cubs and brought back largely the same team from the previous season. The additions of outfielders Ed Hahn and John O'Neill added a little punch to the lineup, but that wasn't saying much for a team that took a big step back offensively after a year in which they had already been in the bottom half of the league. What they had, though, was four pitchers, all in their 20s, who just seemed to keep getting better. Frank Owen, Nick Altrock, Doc White, and Ed Walsh combined to win 77 games in 1906 and compiled a total ERA of 1.98. Still, thanks to the lackluster offense, the team struggled to get off the ground in 1906. By mid-June, they were below 500, and as late as July 25th, when the Cubs were just starting their incredible run, the Sox were nine games out of first place. On August 2nd, with the team sitting in fourth, Doc White pitched them to a 3-0 win over Boston. The next day, it was Ed Walsh's turn to hurl a shutout. Then Roy Patterson. Suddenly, the Sox were on a winning streak. A week later, the streak was still going as a 1-0 win over New York moved the White Sox into first place for the first time all year. After a tie on August 13th, they won again, and again. On August 23rd, they beat Washington 4-1 and found themselves five and a half games ahead of the rest of the AL after a league-record 19-game win streak. Two days later, it ended. 
as the Senators scored three runs in the bottom of the ninth to beat Ed Walsh 5-4. Prior to the collapse, Walsh had won seven games during the streak. Unlike the National League, which was wrapped up by the first week in August, the AL stayed tight all the way until the end. The Sox found themselves a game back on September 23rd, but got hot again, reeling off nine wins in ten games to capture their third pennant in the last seven years. Now the stage was set for the first ever Crosstown World Series. For much of their histories, fans had the opportunity to bounce back and forth in their fandom, usually cheering on whichever team was faring better at the time. By the fall of 1906, both teams were already champions, so clearer lines of fandom were starting to be drawn. Both the South and West sides of the time were largely industrial, meaning many fans were unable to attend World Series games because they worked full-time, six days a week. Instead of these loyalists, many of the fans that packed West and South Side parks during the Ought 6 series were white-collar workers who were let out of work early or given the day off entirely on the occasion of the big series. Chicago's City Hall was closed on the occasion of the opener, so the government was shut down to watch the Cubs and Sox. Just business as usual, sniped several writers at the time. Comiskey, for one, was unhappy that the National Commission had made it difficult for his neighborhood supporters to show up. He was determined not to raise ticket prices, but the rules demanded that the prices double, something that was not routinely done for the City Series. Despite the raise in prices, the series was sure to draw sellout crowds had it not been for one thing. The weather was dreadful, at least to start. The first two games were played in temperatures below 40 degrees, making for an unpleasant atmosphere for the 12,000 or so per game that did show up. Game 1 was played on October 9th, 35 years to the day after the most notable event in Chicago history. On the anniversary of the Chicago Fire, the city was showing once again how far it had come, acting as the center of the sporting world in what would go down as one of the biggest moments the city had ever seen, this time on the positive side. As one newsman wrote, Today, a fire is raging in the city that has been smoldering for weeks past and will burst into its full glory at 2.30. While thousands of fans lined up at the gates on the west side to witness Game 1, thousands more gathered in two theaters in Chicago to get the action secondhand. The auditorium and the 1st Regiment Armory, combined capacity 9,000 or so, were both hosting events in which the game was reenacted on stage. A private telegraph line was set up from the ballpark to each theater, and the instant after a play occurred, it was flashed up on a giant scoreboard set up on stage. It would be just like watching a real game, the Tribune crowed. That's debatable, but there weren't any other options at the time. In a world before radio and television, fans that didn't go to the park typically had to wait until the next day's newspaper to find out the winner. This gave them another option, and tickets were all free. Both locations were jam-packed. The town may have been awash in excitement for the start of the series, but very few actually believed there would be much competition. For as well as the White Sox finished the year, the Cubs had been an unstoppable force since June. Plus, they had the memories of the previous year to keep them confident. We beat the White Sox last fall in a gallop, manager Chance told the press before the series. As the team is much stronger now, I don't see why we shouldn't repeat. All just gamesmanship on the part of the skipper. Fielder Jones, the player manager for the Sox, told reporters that he didn't see where the Cubs had anything on his team. But Jones aside, the pre-series dope was so far in the Cubs' favor that when Hugh Fullerton of the Chicago Tribune picked the White Sox to win, the Tribune refused to run it, calling it too unlikely. Mordecai Three Finger Brown was the Game 1 starter for the Cubs. Despite the moniker, Brown actually had four fingers. His right index finger was a stump due to a childhood run-in with a feed cutter. 
He broke his other fingers on the same hand in a separate accident as a kid, and the result was a deformed middle finger and a pinky devoid of feeling. The deformity on his hand allowed him to put spin on the baseball that had never been seen before or since. Although most Cub fans today know him as Three Finger Brown, at the time his more common nickname was Miner, an allusion to his pre-baseball years spent as a coal miner. Whatever you called him, he was good. In 1906, he won 26 games and led all of baseball with a 1.04 ERA, still the second best mark posted since 1900. His opponent in the series opener was Nick Altrock, who had pitched and won some big games against the Cubs in previous seasons. Both men were dominant in the early innings, holding the opposition scoreless until the fifth. That's when the White Sox took advantage of some shaky Cubs defense. With a runner at third base and one out, Patsy Doherty hit a tapper back to the mound. Brown threw home in plenty of time to catch George Rowey, who was streaking home from third, but Johnny Kling, the catcher, dropped the ball, and the Sox took the first lead. An RBI single from Frank Isbell the next inning doubled that advantage, and that was all that Alt-Rock needed. He and Brown pitched dueling four hitters, but the unearned run in the fifth provided the Sox the margin they needed to take the opener 2-1. to one. They'll never beat us now, Comiskey boasted after the game one win, but Charles Murphy kept a smile on his face. One swallow does not make a summer, was his reply. That night, baseball's heavy hitters held court at the Auditorium Annex, known today as the Congress Hotel. Van Johnson, Harry Pulliam, and Gary Herman, all three members of the National Commission, gathered with A's manager Connie Mack, as well as other baseball dignitaries. The baseball men relived the day's action and interacted with fans who all wanted to talk about the World Series. Chicago had become the baseball center of the world, and this scene would replay itself in the hotel lobby throughout the week. Just as it did on the west side for Game 1, ceremonial bunting lined the stands at the south side grounds for Game 2, and although the park was spruced up to look its best, weather again intruded. Temperatures hovered around the freezing point, but it was never bad enough to interrupt play. In fact, the only interruption was man-made. In the bottom of the first inning, with player-manager Fielder Jones up to bat, the White Sox bench hopped onto the field to present their leader with a gift of a full set of silver encased in a wooden box. After thanking his teammates, he grounded out. That was the story of the afternoon for the White Sox offense. Not the constant gifts, but the inability to get on base. Ed Royalbach walked six, but allowed only one hit. The Sox, whom the local media had dubbed hitless wonders during the season, had just five safeties through the first two games. The Cubs' bats broke out in game two. Harry Steinfeld led the way with three hits, and Joe Tinker scored three runs in a 7-1 route as fans waved their teddy bears, a term that had just been recently invented, in support of their beloved Cubs. The West Siders had lost a nail-biter and won a blowout, but they both counted the same, so the series was even at one game each. Two days later, the series was still even. Ed Walsh had thrown a shutout to knock out the Cubs in Game 3, and Minor Brown pulled the same feat against the Sox in Game 4. Both games came down to one big hit. In the White Sox win, that hit came from reserve infielder George Rowey. He had been forced into the starting lineup because of a pre-series injury suffered by George Davis. Now here he was, making the biggest impact of all. He had already scored the first run in Game 1, and in the sixth inning of a scoreless tie in Game 3, he came through again. Let's set the scene. The Sox had loaded the bases against Cubs southpaw Jack Fister with no one out. Fister, though, recovered, getting a pop-out and a strikeout. Then, with the crowd of over 13,000 fans on their feet and screaming, 
Looking like Fister was about to get out of the jam, Rowey tore at the first pitch and ripped a triple down the left field line. Fans at the auditorium went wild, throwing their hats in the air and dancing through the aisles. The scene was only slightly less chaotic at the ballpark itself. The three deciding runs scored as the White Sox took a 2-1 series lead. Brown's shutout the next day, though, ensured that neither team could get on a roll. In a near-carbon copy of Game 3, Johnny Evers had the game-winning hit for the Cubs, a two-out single in the seventh that made it a 1-0 final, and even the teams at two wins each. With it now clear that neither team could win at home, Frank Chance took the dramatic step of having his squad wear their traveling gray uniforms at Westside Grounds for Game 5. Interestingly, prior to the dawn of the City Series in 1903, Chicagoans had no idea what either team's road uniforms even looked like. There was no TV, and on the rare occasion that photographs made it back home, they were all printed in black and white. Okay, I think it's interesting anyway. With the weather steadily improving and each game seemingly more exciting than the last, attendance improved at each of the first four games until it finally climaxed in a crowd of over 23,000 on the west side for Game 5, the second biggest crowd ever to see a World Series game to that point. On the whole, the 06 series was far outdrawing either of the first two editions. There was much revelry before the game as George M. Cohan, the legendary entertainer, sent gifts to be presented to the two managers, diamond-studded watch fobs inscribed with from George M. Cohan, a lover of baseball. Cohan was in town but unable to attend the series because he was performing in a show. More gifts were presented to Frank Chance, but he kept his distance from these ones. Four bear cubs who were paraded around the bases. The West Side Rooters were pulling out all the stops for this game. Three of the first four contests of the Cubs-Sox battle were fiercely contested pitcher's duels. Game five was fiercely contested all right, but a pitcher's duel, it wasn't. Neither starter, Ed Walsh for the Pale Hose and Ed Royalbach for the Bruins, was able to make it the distance. Walsh, pitching on just one day's rest after his shutout in Game 3, struggled out of the gate and his defense didn't do much to back him up, committing two errors in a three-run Cubs first. But on this day, the hitless wonders became wonderful hitters, storming back with a couple of big innings to capture a 7-3 lead. It should be noted that although the White Sox earned that nickname by finishing last in the American League in batting average, while also finishing last in slugging and in the bottom half of on-base percentage, they somehow finished third in runs scored. So their World Series outburst wasn't totally out of character. The two teams traded a few more runs late, but Doc White came out of the Sox bullpen to lock down an 8-6 victory. Frank Isbell, the longest-tenured White Sox, who was with Comiskey all the way back in his St. Paul days, led the charge with four hits. George Rowey, the unlikely hero, wrapped out three of his own. George Davis, the man that Rowey had been filling in for, was back in the lineup too, but with Rowey performing so well, the Sox decided to bench Lee Tannehill instead. Davis chipped in with three RBIs. The road uniforms hadn't done the trick for the Cubs. The Southsiders were just a game away from a championship. Tensions were high enough after the game that Cub fan John Ryan got himself arrested, attacking a whole crowd of White Sox fans single-handed. Rowdyism aside, though, the series through five games had been an unquestioned success. Record crowds, unprecedented fan participation. The Tribune ran a comical feature before Game 5, claiming to have found the only man in the city who was unaware of the series. Great games, wonderful storylines. If any series seemed destined for a dramatic seventh game, this would be it. Instead, Game 6 ended early. The Cubs sent their superstar, Minor Brown, to the mound, and for what felt like the first time all year, he just didn't have it. 
The White Sox ambushed him for seven runs in the first two innings. Fittingly, it was George Rowey who knocked Brown out of the game with a second inning single. It was a runaway for the Sox, who got a fine performance out of their starter, Doc White, who threw a complete game one day after notching what today would be known as a save in Game 5. When it became clear that the National Leaguers were going down, the wives of the White Sox players got together and drafted a simple note to NL President Harry Pulliam, who was seated nearby. How do you like it now? was all the note said. Pulliam took the loss graciously. He borrowed a White Sox pennant from a fan and waved it in defeat. The final score was 8-3, and when Wildfire Schulte grounded out to Jiggs Donahue for the final out of the ninth inning, the ballpark was madness. Nearly 20,000 fans in the ballpark stormed the field as thousands more who couldn't get tickets danced and cheered just outside. To this day, it's the only time the White Sox have ever won a World Series at home. The crowd regaled the defeated Cubs and their embattled owner with a chorus of So Long Murphy, How We Hate to See You Lose to the tune of George Cohan's hit, So Long Mary. Mary, we will miss you so, so long Mary, how we hate to see you go. Charles Comiskey very tactfully claimed that he would rather have beaten anybody else but the Cubs, but his remarks are hard to take seriously. A year after calling the City Series the greatest loss of his career, and a week after being given no chance by even his own fans, this win must have felt sweet for the veteran owner. Several White Sox players admitted to being fueled by the five-game loss to the Cubs in 1905. Parties continued throughout the night, some of them formal, like Comiskey's bash in the Pompeian Room at the Auditorium Building, where he bought drinks for all his guests. Some less formal, like the thousands of Sox fans who went parading through the city all night, picking up various White Sox players from their homes along the way. The winner's share was just over $25,000, and Comiskey, in an apparent act of generosity, tossed another $15,000 on top of it. The gift from Comiskey turned out not to be quite so generous in the end. He took it out of the players' salaries for the following season. In total, each White Sox received $1,945.29 for their World Series work, more money than Ed Walsh had made for the entire season. Cubs players in defeat were rewarded nearly $700 each, the equivalent of roughly $20,000 today. For the span of a week, Chicago had been turned on its head. Work was neglected. Baseball dominated the conversation in seemingly every bar, restaurant, and home in the city. But within a week, it was business as usual. Baseball was no longer on the front page of every paper. Several players returned home to heroes' welcomes, parades, and feasts. But back in the big city, life moved on. Not for long, though. In the spring, the game would return, and anticipation may never have been higher. Next week on Chicago's Civil War, we speed things up a little because at this pace, we're not going to get through 1942 until about 2042. Not to be deterred by their World Series setback, the Cubs embark on the most dominant stretch of baseball in National League history, while the White Sox struggle to keep up, and eventually the two teams match up in what might be the most exciting postseason series ever played. That's next week on Chicago's Civil War. And for more information on this episode and a complete back catalog of previous ones, please visit terrybonadonna.com slash city dash series. <laughs>